Okay, we're back in the book of Ruth, and I was thinking about this book of Ruth, and I was going to do it like chapter by chapter. I had thought about doing about like, you know, chapter one, and then chapter two, and then chapter three, and chapter four. Uh, and then one of the things that kind of struck me as I was just studying chapter one was the characters in Ruth, right? You have these brilliant, kind of round, engaging, fascinating characters. So what we'll do for this book as we go through it over the next, I want to say, I think I'm going to take four weeks to go through it, is we're going to look at the characters. I would say the four main characters. We're going to talk about this guy named Elimelech this morning. Um, and then I think next week we'll talk, about, uh, we'll talk about Naomi. And then we'll talk about Ruth. And then we'll end by talking about Boaz. So instead of maybe going chapter by chapter, we will go character by character. Um, and kind of look at the different characters in the book of, of Ruth. So this week we're going to talk about this guy, Elimelech. And um, we are going to start by, I want to show you some very unique locations in the United States, okay? And then we're going to have a little irony with each of these locations. So, for example, there's this wonderful place in Texas called Oatmeal, Texas. Isn't that great? Now, imagine if in the town of Oatmeal they had no hot water. Wouldn't that be tragic, right? Wouldn't that be tragic? Um, so, in, in beautiful oatmeal, and I don't even know where Oatmeal, Texas is in relationship to anything. It could be... It's right outside of Dallas. It's right outside of... You know this? Oh, you're just making... That. I was going to say, that's impressive. Uh, put, you on, put, you on, put you on Jeopardy. Everything is, right? Um, so, there's Oatmeal, Texas, and in the town of Oatmeal, poor Oatmeal, they had no hot water. All these oats and nothing to do with them. Um, and then there's Money, Mississippi. Look at that giant town right there. There were no banks in Money, Mississippi. But they, have a lot of money. but they might have a lot of money, but just nowhere to put it, Isan. They had to hide it under their mattress. Um, there was this great list, and there were so many. I think there was like 25 of these, you know, kind of weird towns that... Um, and then here's another one. There's Fertile, Iowa. And the wombs were barren in Fertile, Iowa. And then here's one last one that we'll do. And this one, this one's close to my heart, because this is, this is from my home state. Um, and, and I'm just going to let you actually fill in the blank on this one because I don't, as a pastor, I can't really talk too much about this. Intercourse, Pennsylvania. <laughs> the, the blank was blank in intercourse. So you get to fill in those blanks wherever your pure and righteous and holy minds take you. There's, the, there's, um, there's these two towns in, in Pennsylvania, and, they, and they're kind of obviously famous. There's intercourse, and then there's another one called Middlesex. And they're really close to each other. Um, Mom, any, any history on the intercourse? Like what that? It is the intersection of a couple of places. Got it. Got it. So, so, um, so those are the places. Now, here's why I bring this up. If you go to Ruth. Got it? Perfect. If you go to Ruth chapter 1. This is on page 182 if you've got a Bible right there. You can text message me your submissions for the intercourse one, and I'll decide which one was the best one.
Um, if you go to Ruth chapter 1, and actually we're just going to do the first five verses to talk about our boy Elimelech, because there's just so much packed in here. So it says, in the days when the judges ruled, and I'm going to actually get back to one of the judges in a little bit. Um, but in the days when the judges ruled, and I think we talked about this in the intro, it's, it's this very tumultuous time, this, this cycle of, of sin, of, of crying out to the Lord, of the Lord rescuing the people, of the people forgetting about Yahweh, retreating into sin. It's just this washing machine of, of, of just, of just, uh, just, it's just a difficult, difficult moment. When, when the Israelites move into the promised land and there's not really any established leadership to kind of bind everybody together, you have these tribal leaders that are kind of leading the people and it's just kind of a very unsettled time you might think about the kind of early formation of the colonies of the United States, right? And it wasn't necessarily until the United States was formed under the Constitution when we think about our great forefathers, Washington and, and Adams and Jefferson and those sorts of people. But in the times of the colonies, when things were kind of unsettled and we were battling with, 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 uh, with the English and, and all those sorts of things, the judges kind of operates a little bit in that mode where there's just, it's just unsettled. So it says, in this time when these judges rules, there is a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem, Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, the reason we played with those words at the beginning is because the, the word Bethlehem, it means house of bread. So there's this irony that's happening where you could say, in the house of bread, there is no food, Right? So, in the house of bread, there is no food. Now, there's this famine is, is what the Bible tells us that's happening. And when we think about a famine, what causes a famine, right? Is it natural causes, right? We have, as a uh, state, just come out of a drought, right? And we saw in the Central Valley just how, how the lack of rain really affected that. And obviously, they were able to drill down into the groundwater and preserve some of it. But we, we understand the natural causes that, would, would cause a famine? Would it be poor agricultural decisions, right? Would it be that farmers didn't know what they were doing? They didn't know how to store water. They didn't know how to, to, to kind of divert water and, and use water and canal water in the right way. Was it a hoarding of food? Maybe there was plenty of food, but it was all being hoarded at the top level and not enough of the kind of normal people, the everyday people were able to have, were able to have uh, the food, right? See, when the Bible says that there's a famine in the land, none of these things would have came to their mind, right? They wouldn't be thinking like, oh, it's just, you know, the weather pattern and the jet streams are just kind of flowing up this way and it's not, right? They're not thinking like, well, if I just farm this way and if I can kind of divert water, they're not thinking about the top. The, the famine was a theological condition, right? It's a theological condition. And Deuteronomy, we won't go there, but Deuteronomy goes into specifics about basically like there's consequences for the Israelite people when they would fail to hold up their part of the covenant with Yahweh, right? So Yahweh says, if you be my people, if you're obedient, if you're good, if you listen, if you keep the law, then I'm going to bless you. But listen, if you break the law, if, you, if you're disobedient, if you wander from me, then there will be consequences for that disobedience, Right? So when they understand famine, right, in, in their mindset, in the ancient Near East, the story that we understand here in the book of Ruth, it begins, I would say it's saturated 
in a spiritual breakdown. There's a collapse of the covenant. And this is the lens that we have to understand this book of Ruth, right? The famine isn't just like, well, you know, it's just kind of a poor time for them, poor them. You have to understand, again, as you understand the judges, the cycle of the judges and the judges, kind of all the things that are going on there, there is this collapse of the covenant. Israel isn't holding up their part of the bargain, right? There's this breakdown, right? And so what Elimelech does is Elimelech, I would say, seems to do a very reasonable thing to do. If, there's, if, if you were a farmer and you lived in the Central Valley a couple years ago when there was no water, a reasonable thing to do would be to what? Huh? Pray. Move away. You'd go somewhere else, right? Well, I don't have any work here. The, the land's not fertile here. Well, I have the ability to move up and go into the foreign nation of, I don't know, fertile Iowa, I guess, right? So Elimelech, he moves. And so here's where he goes, right? Elimelech, again, living in the house of bread, right here, Bethlehem, right? They say it's about, more or less, it's about a 50-mile journey over here, across, across the water, across the sea, and he moves into somewhere into this town of Moab, or to this region of Moab. Now, it's fascinating that he does this, because again, we think as a, as a very, in my mind, it's a very rational thing to do. It's a smart thing to do. You have family, you have sons, you have a wife, and, and there's no food, and, there, and there's nothing happening here. So why don't I go over here to where I could maybe find some food, right? To where I could provide for my family. But there's two kind of things that are, are underneath happening right here. And the one thing is that the gods were territorial, and I put kind of a, a lowercase g there, right? They were territorial, and they were specific to the geography of a region, right? And then the other thing that's kind of happening underneath is that Moab was actually the enemy country, right? Um, and, and you could even think today in terms of uh, if, if you're kind of a good, orthodox, pious uh, Jewish person living, say, in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem or somewhere in, in Israel, right? And there's difficulty and you decide to pick up and move your family into Iran, right? We would think about, we would still, that would be like, that's still an eyebrow razor, right? Like you would, you would go from Israel into enemy territory into an Iran or into an Iraq or a place that would be an enemy territory. So when Elimelech moves from Bethlehem into Moab, two things are happening. Well, number one, He's moving specifically out of kind of Yahweh's domain, and he's moving into enemy territory. Now, let me explain these two things, because these are kind of important things. First, I want to talk about this kind of geographic piece for a second. There is this fascinating story, and you don't need to go there, in 2 Kings chapter 5. And there's a story about, we all know the prophet Elisha, S-H-A, not Elijah, Elisha. Elisha... Um, is, is, is the prophet in Israel at the time. He's kind of like the number one guy. And there's this, this general, and his name is, uh, this, this general's name is Naaman, right? So Naaman has leprosy. He's sick. He has all this leprosy. And he hears about this prophet named Elisha who, who does miracles in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh. So he goes to him and he says, hey, can you heal me? Can you, can you fix me of this leprosy? And Elisha says, yeah, sure, go ahead, just go wash yourself in the Jordan a couple times and you'll be good and you'll be healed, right? And at first he's a little bit taken aback. He's like, well, this guy's not even going to come and 
do anything, but he's just saying, yeah, just go wash yourself, you're good. So he does it, and he washes himself. He becomes cleaned or cleansed of the leprosy, right? And then what's kind of the normal response? What would you want to do if that was you? Huh? You're going to go back to him, but what would you want to, what would you want to do? You'd want to go back in the water, and then, and then you'd, want to, you'd want to kind of return the favor somehow, right? Like, thank you for cleaning, for, for healing me, for cleansing me, right? And so this guy Naaman says, I'm going to pay you for doing this, right? And like all good men of spiritual character, no, thank you. We are not worthy of your money. Keep your money. You take your money. If only that were true, right? Um, so, but Elisha says, no, no, I don't want your money. I, I don't want any of your money. You keep all your money, your, your, your jewels. And so it's fascinating. So this guy Naaman says this. He says, well then, and here's, here's why you're like, why am I looking at a weird picture of a donkey with stuff on the side? He says, let me load up two donkeys with, with dirt from your land. And I'm going to take it back to my land, which was outside of kind of Israel at the time. I'm going to take it back to my land. And there... I'm going to offer sacrifices to Yahweh. Now, why would he do that? Because the way that they would understand and interpret gods is that the gods lived in a certain territory. So, for example, again, going back to this map, you would have certain gods that, say, lived in Moab, right? This guy, Naaman, was actually from Ammon, right here, right? You'd have certain gods that would reside here. You'd have certain gods that would reside here. Yahweh resided here. So when he says, let me take some of your dirt, your geography, your territory, and I'm going to bring it back here, right? I want to worship your God here. And the only way I can do that is actually by having the physical dirt, the geography beneath my feet. That's the way that they would understand things. When uh, Elimelech leaves Bethlehem, he's not just skipping across the river what he's actually doing is he's walking away from Yahweh, right? God, you're not cutting it is what he's saying. You're not meeting my needs. I'm not, literally and kind of figuratively, I'm not being fed here. So because he faces this difficult circumstance, again, it's not just like, hey, it's this real rational thing to do to kind of walk up and move away. Because he faces this difficult circumstance, he's actually, by crossing the border into Moab, he's walking away from God. That's what he's doing. Okay. So there's this piece where the gods are territorial, but then there's also this piece where not only is he walking away from God, he's walking into enemy territory. When we talked about Ruth two years ago, and I know that this sermon is just so fresh in your mind right now as you're thinking about it, you're like, oh yeah, I totally remember that whole sermon, all your points, Eric, and everything that was this. When we talked about Ruth a couple years ago, you have to understand Moab here, right? In Genesis 19, I know you guys are probably familiar with the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, this godless pagan place, and, huh? Sure. And God says, God says, you know, hey, you need to get out of there because I'm going to bring judgment onto that city. So Lot and his wife, they escape with their daughters, right? What does the wife do? Turns around. What does she become? Pillar of salt, right? Lot escapes with his daughters, right? After his, oh, it's right up there on the, no, what are you guys? You know, <laughs> <seriously>. <laughs> 
<laughs> he escapes with his daughters and he goes into this, this place called, um, into this, this kind of area called Moab, right? Across, across the river, right? Or it wasn't called Moab at that moment, but he escapes there. Now here's what happens. The daughters realize, how are we going to continue our family line? And so they come up with a plan to sleep with their dad, to have children with their dad. So they're going to, they're going to get him drunk, and they're going to have, Brody walked in for the best part, they're going to get their father drunk, and they're going to sleep with their dad so they can preserve the family line. I remember one commentator saying, how much alcohol is required for that? <laughs> Because just the thought of it kind of turns your stomach, right? You're thinking to yourself, this is disgusting that anybody would ever think like this. This great famous painting by uh, the Englishman William Blake of the two daughters of, of Lot. Um, and you can see the, the kind of empty chalice here and, and, and the other chalice here. And there's the drinking. And then there's kind of the erotic nature of this photo. But this, it's this image of these two daughters sleeping with their father to, to preserve the family nine. So Lot escapes Gomorrah with his daughters after his wife has turned to salt. The older daughter has a son and she names him Moab, right? He's the father of the Moabites today. So again, when the Israelites uh, think about Moab, it's associated with incest. It's associated with sin, with perversion, and over the years, this region Moab develops as an enemy, as a thorn in the side of, of Israel. You get to the time when the judges rule in Judges 3. Again, Judges was a book we went through, I think two years ago at the same time, maybe three years ago, right? Judges 3, and remember, there's the, probably the, the best judges story besides Samson, the second best judges story. Is is the one, huh? Is the Ehud story, right? So you get to Judges 3 where that fat king Eglon is the king of the Moabites, right? And it says in Judges 3 that the Moabites are the one who have oppressed Israel for 18 years, right? And then you have the, the, the judge Ehud and he goes to stab King Eglon. And he stabs him, but he's so fat that the, the fat closes in over the knife and he can't even get the knife out. And then the guards are outside waiting like, what's wrong with the king? Maybe he's going to the bathroom and he's taking a long time. It's this really funny narrative, right? But the point, the, the, the thing that I want to um, stress here is that it's these Moabites who have oppressed and conquered Israel for 18 years. So not only does Elimelech leave Israel walk outside the territory, walk outside the borders of Yahweh, he travels to the pagan, to the lost country of Moab, to the enemy. There's really not many worse places this man could go. Right? Now, here's where I want to pause and kind of spend the morning. Elimelech, when he's faced with difficult circumstances, with trials, with struggles, the posture he takes, I want to say this, is from God, not to God. Okay? Now, I love the whiteboard. Let's go to the whiteboard. Talk about this for a second. I realize, though, too, as much as I love the whiteboard, 
I think this is easier to see. So I think I was realizing that. But let's talk about Elimelech here. And then I'm going to put right here, I'm going to put a posture from. And then I'm going to put, this is going to be kind of a posture to. Posture from God, a posture from Yahweh, a posture towards Yahweh, right? So again, Elimelech, when he kind of faces, um, and, and kind of right here too, we're going to just say, we'll just say trial, right? Elimelech's trial is famine. Okay? His posture, so to speak, from God is to do what? Protect the people. To leave, right? To walk away. Where does he go? Moab. I haven't lost you guys yet, have I? You guys just being, just being humble. Just being, just, right? What might be a posture... If Elimelech would have thought, like, what would be a posture towards God in that kind of difficult trial, that circumstance? Look up to the Lord. Look up to the Lord. Stay put. Stay put. Pray and pray. Stay and pray. Okay. So maybe, again, a posture towards the Lord would have been to stay. Pray. I like that. We'll just use that. Okay. Now, let's think about this for a second. Let's play with this for a second. Okay. So... For example, again, in a difficult circumstance, let's say this. Let's say that something about your work becomes very demanding. Right? Something about work becomes very demanding. It's very challenging. I'm going to say some tough things here for a second, but stick with me. Because it might sound like I'm kind of being like super black and white guy, but I, just stick with me for a second, okay? Sometimes when work gets demanding, sometimes, so, often, oftentimes our first response might be, well, I'm just going to have to go in on Sunday, right? Got to go work on Sunday. I got to go get this project done. I just got to go, you know, I just got to, it's only going to be a couple months that I have to work on Sunday. It's only going to happen a couple times. Now, this doesn't apply to anybody here because y'all are here on Sunday, so praise them. Thank the Lord, right? right? But sometimes when work becomes demanding, maybe a posture from God is to just say, well, I, God, I know that it's, Sunday's important. I know that gathering with your people is important, but this is just an important thing, right? What would be a posture to God in this moment? Maybe a posture towards God is to remain faithful. And we're going to say to the body, to the body of Christ, right? So work becomes demanding. Sometimes our first movement in that challenging, in that difficult circumstance is to cut something out. Again, to move away, to have a posture from God, right? Let's do a couple more. You got that difficult child. If you don't have children anymore, family member. Right? You know who I'm talking about. Everybody, somebody's got that person in your mind already. Posture from God is to pick up the telephone, to get on the text, and you just like to complain about that person. You just like to whine. You just like to talk about the negative attributes of that person. You just like to, 
to, to call that person and say, well, you know what, so-and-so did this time, and then, yeah, and then that happened, and then, oh, well, of course, they're getting what they deserve, and yeah, and you just kind of get into that cycle of just, of just yammering on about how horrible that child is, how tough that family member is, how difficult this situation is with them, and how they blew it again. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's a posture from God. What's well, a posture towards God, right? What about if you began to pray for that person? Pray for that child who's difficult. You pray for that family member who's made all those poor decisions. You begin to say, Lord, I, I don't help me to understand what they're going through. God, give me a heart of compassion towards that person. Lord, show me where I might need to speak truth to that person, right? But do you understand? Do you see how we're, we're working this line? We're going to do a couple more, okay? I think this is important. Let's just say that you're generally stressed and you're anxious. Right? Sometimes a lot of things I would say maybe a posture from God. Again, hold on, don't 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 put all judgment and condemnation on my list yet, because I'm gonna I'm gonna tie some because it feels a little harsh. Um, sometimes when you're stressed and anxious, what oftentimes people do, and I think this is a posture from God, is they eat a little extra or maybe they drink a little extra. Right? You're stressed at work, so you come home and you figure I just need that comfort food. I just need that food that makes me feel good. You have that, that anxiety about something in your life. And so it's not just a glass of wine. It's four glasses of wine. It's five glasses of wine. You need that, that alcohol to take the edge off, right? And when we have the stress and the anxiety, we say to ourselves, I just need that food. I just need that drink. And we move towards this, right? In, in times of stress. And I, again, I think this is a posture from God. What would be a posture towards God? I think that Jesus talks specifically and Jesus claims himself as the bread of life. Amen. Jesus claims himself specifically as living water. And so oftentimes when we're stressed and when we're anxious and we're, when we have these difficult circumstances, we move towards this type of eating and drinking and not this type of eating and drinking, right? I'm not done wearing you guys out yet. You have a financial setback. How many times the first thing when we have that financial setback, the first thing when money starts to become short is that we actually, we decrease in generosity, right? So we have a tough time and we say, well, look, I, we got to cut back. We got to make sacrifices. And so oftentimes the first sacrifice is maybe what you, and I'm going to say a couple different things, is maybe what you give to the church or you don't give to the church, is maybe what you give to a charitable organization, is maybe you're, you're sponsoring a child and you say, man, I, I need that extra money this month. And oftentimes our posture from God in difficult circumstances and setbacks and trials is our first move is to decrease generosity when instead, again, a posture towards God or to God would to say, maybe you, maybe you give more as a defiant act of faithfulness to God. Or maybe you just say, we are going to, we are going to keep our generosity, we're going to remain faithful in our generosity, and we are going to trust God in this moment, and we're going to cut back on other things, right? 
So, one more. There's sickness. There's death. Difficult circumstance in life, isn't it? Right? Oftentimes what happens in, in, in this difficult circumstance when there's sickness and death, maybe a posture from God would be to become cynical, to become depressed, to become bitter. How often do we see people who are sick and who are dying and we see this, this kind of mentality begins to seep into their, into their brain, into their lifestyle. It affects who they are, right? Right. And what about if in this moment, when there's sickness, when there's death, you actually increase your praise to the Lord? Your worship? Your trust? Your belief? What about if in this moment, one of the verses I thought was so profound as I was studying this too, is Romans 8.28, we're convinced every detail of our lives is continually woven together to fit into God's perfect plan of bringing good into our lives. We are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. Romans 8.28. Right? So I would say this. In, in difficult circumstances, in trials, Right? Now, this, again, I want to say this. This isn't like if you do this, like you're on the naughty list. This isn't just a list of bad things to do, right? This isn't black and white condemnations. Sometimes this might be appropriate, right? Sometimes this might be appropriate. If you've had a, you know, sometimes it's, it's okay. To, you, need to, you need to talk it out with a family member, right? Sometimes there could be a season when you need to go into work on a Sunday, Right? Sometimes depression is, is just kind of part of the normal part of, of death, right? And, and that's part of the grieving process. So this isn't like, hey, don't ever do this, right? If you do this, you're, you're like a bad Christian or whatever. That's not what I'm trying to say, right? Here's what I'm trying to say. I think I have this on a slide. Elimelech did not cross the border into Moab and keel over dead. He exerted a pattern over 10 years, right? And that's, to me, what why he ends up in to death. So think about this progression for Elimelech. He sojourns, right? It says he, he, he only intends to go there for a little while, doesn't he? And then it ends up where his sons, as we're going to learn next week, his sons begin to marry these Moabite women. Well, imagine that. Imagine that you are a good, pious Jew and that you have raised your children in the ways of Yahweh and you happen to sojourn into Iran and then your children marry Iranian uh, women. And think about that kind of scandal in your family. And then you end up in Iran for 10 years, and it ends up actually just, just, just defeating you, and it ends up killing you, right? There are steps towards sin which aren't sin in themselves. Again, you can take these steps, and you think, well, it's just, it's just you know, a couple, a couple months, a couple years, and you just begin to work, and this just becomes... Uh, natural for you. I'm, I'm just having three or four drinks and then it's five or six and then it's seven or eight. And you exert these sorts of patterns, these sorts of behaviors, and you begin to see what direction your life begins to turn. One of the commentaries that I read, I love how he said this. He says, 
Ten long, painful years went by, and they were still there, ensnared by a cascade of fateful and foolish decisions. How many times have we rationalized our drifting away from God's priorities in pursuit of our personal agendas? Let's beware of the subtle steps by which sin ensnares us, right? So Elimelech, when you study the character of Elimelech to me, Elimelech serves as a sobering warning of what it looks like to drift from Yahweh, to drift from God, to drift from a life in the kingdom of God. Now, this honestly is probably about the the most um, fire and brimstone you'll hear me get, right? But it is. It's a warning that there are, as, as, um, as Mr. Stern said, there's all these subtle steps that we take, that we drift from, right? There are steps towards sin, which aren't sin in themselves, but we just take these steps, and these patterns form over a year, over 10 years, and we end up in death, right? There's this fascinating um, parallel to me too. As I think about the story of Elimelech, Elimelech faces famine and he takes a posture from God and he moves towards Moab, towards enemy country. The prodigal son, think about the lost son, is in enemy country, is in pagan nation, experiences famine and what does he do? He moves towards the father. One story ends up as a party, as a celebration, as a feast. One story ends up in death. Right? Elimelech, he's this, again, he's this sobering warning of what it looks like to drift from Yahweh, to drift from life in the kingdom of God. I remember one of my favorite things Dallas Willard would always used to say is like, people would ask Dallas, they'd say, Dallas, why should one go to church? And Dallas had this, and I, I know I've shared this before, I'm sure you guys heard me share this. Dallas would have just such a brilliant response where he'd say, well, stop going and see what happens. Right? See what happens when you decide to just drift away from the subtle steps of, of, making, of creating a posture from, from God. Right? I was just talking to someone on the phone. I'm sorry, we had a, I was a meeting with somebody just a week or two ago and they were telling me about um, they were telling me about this relationship it was a family relationship she was telling me about her father who was really involved in church and who was giving his life towards the Lord and was really involved and then just, just kind of stopped going and she's really struggling with this relationship because um, because the patterns over years of that drift away from God just create a different kind of person. And it's become very difficult. There's a real strain on this relationship. Um, so, let's do this. I got two more things to say. The idea here, the whole sermon here, is that in these difficult circumstances, in these trials, when life becomes demanding, right, The idea is not to engage this posture, I would say, from God, right? The idea would be to engage, ask ourselves, God, what would be a posture 
toward you? How can I move myself towards you in these moments? And I just had two thoughts on this. The first thing, I kind of go back to this territorial aspect. I would encourage you to go to where God is most present for you. What is the location? What is, so to speak, the dirt as, um, as Naaman took that dirt, right? What is the dirt beneath your feet that you encounter God most present to you? So a couple examples, because you're like, well, what do you mean by that? What about if you're in a very difficult circumstance? There are so many beautiful um, cathedrals, churches, houses of worship where one could just go sit and meditate. One could go sit and reflect. One could go sit in silence and, and, and be prayerful. There's beautiful retreat centers all around us. There's places in Valermo and there's places in Malibu and there's places in Orange and there's all these beautiful retreat centers. Maybe for you, there's something about the ocean and the sand beneath your feet and kind of sitting next to the ocean. Maybe there's, there's this real clarity that comes to you. You feel that the Lord is with you. He's present to you when you're there by the ocean. Maybe you're like me and you're not an ocean person. You're not a beach person. You're a mountain person. And you go into nature and you go up into the mountains and you go for a hike. It probably would be more spiritual if you went for a mountain bike ride, but that's just, you know. But you go into the mountains and you go into nature and you go for a hike. And maybe, maybe that's where God is present for you. Maybe you experience his presence easier uh, at, here in this church. Maybe this right here is a small plot of that dirt where you say, I, God, I hear your voice here. I know that you're present here. Maybe there's a, a specific spot in your house, in your backyard, where you can read and you can journal, where you can experience silence and meditation. Maybe for you, the territory for you is your car and you're commuting and you turn on the right music, worship music that fills your mind with the thoughts and the patterns and the goodness of God. Don't listen to the fish because that's just nonsense. Find some good Christian music. That's just, sorry, that's my, my rant on the fish. But there's, there's places where you, there's territories in which we can go. There's, so to speak, that dirt underneath our feet that we can g- encounter God more naturally, experience his presence a little easier, hear him a little clearer, in trials and difficult circumstances and these sorts of things, you find that territory, right? That you hear the voice of the Lord, that you experience God's presence and you move towards that, right? Elimelech in his circumstance, he moved from that. It probably would have been better for him to stay in the house of bread and wait for the salvation that comes from Yahweh and be able to testify about that instead of 10 years gone. The second thing I want to talk about too here is um, another kind of way to keep a posture towards is talk about our identity. So, Elimelech, his name means my God is my king. And yet none of the actions he takes reflect. Remember, a name's not just like, yeah, well, we heard that name was cute and it sounded nice and so we want to... The name was, was who you were. It was your identity. It was what you're, you, you're, you were founded on, right? 
And so when you think about his name, my God is my king, no time in this story, in this narrative, does Elimelech even closely resemble that, right? There's a difficult circumstance as he runs away from his God as king. Elimelech, if he would have pushed deeper, I would say, into his identity, during crisis, during trials, during difficulty, do you push deeper into who your identity is in Christ or do you just start looking at the circumstances and looking at the trials and just run away, right? I, I've heard it said before and I'll say it again. If, if, if churches would do a better job telling people who they are in Christ, if we would do the job of, and reminding people who they are in Christ, if we would do that, we might not have to tell them what to do, right? Who are you in Christ? I know I've passed this out before, but I'm going to pass it out again because I think this is, this is one of these documents that I personally, I just keep this document on my desk and I refer to this because I need to be reminded of who I am in Christ. And when there's difficulties and when there's trials and when there's setbacks and when there's frustrations, I need to look at this and I need to re- be reminded I'm never alone that I'm forgiven, that I'm delighted in, that I'm a co-laborer with Christ, that I have victory in Christ. I need to be reminded of my identity in Christ. So a posture towards would be to return to your identity in Christ. I'm going to pass these out again. And again, this is something that I keep for me. Um, I hope that you would I'll just pass those around. And we want, to give a, we want to give a quick shout out to Hill Crane for making these fine color copies for us. For all your crane needs this morning, please contact Dustin at 71, no, 562. <laughs> uh, you can contact Dustin. If you have any crane needs, we want to thank him. So <laughs> all you podcasters out there listening to the podcast, if you need uh, Thanks, Dustin, for making those copies. <clears throat> Now, we're going to close with this, and then we'll have a little discussion. Take a minute and just scan it. <clears throat> just scan it. I love this, too. I love the way that it's put together. Um, and maybe you have one laying around your house somewhere. I've passed this out before. I'll pass it out probably 100 more times before I, I'm done being a pastor. It's so important. What I want you to do, <clears throat> we're going to start with you over there, Isan, Okay. I want you just to choose one and then to read the Bible verse. I want us all to be reminded this morning of our identity in Christ. If you're going through a diff- we talked about this this morning in prayer. We talked about some of the difficulties that we're facing. We talked about sickness and death. We talked about anxieties and stresses in life. We've talked about family members that are difficult, jobs. We've talked about all these things, right? And so we're going to kind of close our time. I think we'll do a little discussion as well, unless those kids are ready to come and sing their hearts out. Um, we want to close our time reminding ourselves of our identity in Christ. So, Isam, would you read one? Dustin, Ashley, Johnny, Mark, everybody will just go around the room and we'll all read one. And if it gets read twice, praise Jesus. It's all good. If it gets read three times, keep going. Okay? Isam, you read one for us?
Thank you, Sam. Do you want to read one, Johnny? Thank you, Johnny. Wonderfully made, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 139. Hold in Christ. In Christ he has been brought to fullness. Colossians 2.10. Adopted into God's family. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him you cry, Abba, Father. And I will go exactly with what she said, or what her verse was. Okay. Delighted in. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Zephaniah 3, 17. Let's close in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Lord, again, for my brothers and sisters, and, you know, Elimelech just kind of serves, again, as this warning, this sobering um, example of, of what it looks like and, and to, to drift um, specifically in, in difficult circumstances and trials. Um, Lord, I want to keep a posture towards you, to you, with you. And so, Lord, thank you for this time to be together. Remind us again and again and again of who we are in Christ, our true identity. Use us I mean, just this sheet of paper, use this to remind us and to inspire us and to tether us to the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Again, we pray all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Should we do a little discussion? Yes.
We'll do a few minutes. Let me go check in. Julian, are you going to check in on the kids? Check in on the kids. Say it's discussion time and we're ready whenever they are. Um, praise, pushback, and problems. Uh, how is your narrative right now? Again, the, the narrative as we encounter the book of Ruth, it's in spiritual breakdown. It's in covenantial collapse. Uh, there's, they're leaving Bethlehem. How is your narrative right now? Where would you say you are? Are you holding fast? Can you think of a time when in trial or difficulty you moved from God or toward God? Can you think of an example in your life? Uh, what territory do you experience God best? Um, is there a place, a location, kind of that dirt underneath your feet? In you skimming of these verses on this page, this Identity in Jesus page, which one resonates with you most and why? So just take a moment and, and discuss some of those, and then we'll have some discussion unless we get bombarded by the children. So take a few minutes.